If you guys want to get out your Bibles, find Ezekiel chapter 33. We got a bit of a ways to go this morning, but we're going to get there. You know, some mornings I just don't know. <laughs> some mornings I get up and, and it's like I'm ready, to, I'm ready to share. I feel like I know what the Lord is, is kind of going in a certain direction, what he's going to do. And then there's some mornings where I'll, I'll get up here ready to go and I have no idea what the Lord's going to do, even though we have this text before us and I know what it's going to talk about, what we're going to learn from it. I really don't know what he's going to do in our hearts today. I really don't know what, what to expect, but isn't it cool that when we come and we submit ourselves to the Word of God that we can expect Him to work? No matter what, He's going to work in us collectively as a congregation. He's going to work in us individually. So I just want to encourage you guys to prepare yourselves. Not for like, oh, Mike's going to just blow us away. He's going to be throwing stuff across the stage this morning. No, nothing like that. I'm not that hyper. I only had two coffees with no food. That's smart. No, 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 like, I, prepare yourself for what the Lord's going to speak to your heart this morning, because He aims to grow us. He aims to change us. He aims to mature us. And so His goal for us this morning is a closer walk with Him. And so I'm excited. God's going to do something. He's going to do something in your heart. He's going to do something in mine. And I hope that He does something collectively in our body this morning. So as you find Ezekiel chapter 33, I want to remind you of something that, um, that we should all remember that will take us into this text. It is not within your power or mine to go back in time and fix our mistakes. You do not have a time machine. It doesn't work that way. It is not within our power to go back and fix our mistakes in the past. As much as we'd like to, we're helpless to go back and undo things we've done, and living with that reality wrecks some people. It wrecks some people who can't move on from their past. And I want to remind you of something. You can't do anything about that past. You can't go back and change what you did. Sorry. We don't have the technology. I don't believe God's ever going to give that to us. We were given memory, and we remember the things that we did, even though we can't outrun them. So why remember them? What's the benefit of remembering them? To learn. To grow. To not make the same mistakes again. You see, if you forgot your past mistakes, you'd make them again. But our goal is to grow. Some of us don't necessarily focus on the past, but we, we obsess over the future. What's coming in the future, what's happening in our lives, what, what we can plan ahead for, what we can focus our time on to get to this goal. Some of us obsess over these things, and some of us even fear the future. Do you know anyone? You don't have to raise your hand because it may be you. Do you know anybody that, that will think about the future and actually freak themselves out about something they don't know? They don't know what's coming. They don't know what, what comes ahead for them in their lives, but they will literally freak themselves out about something that they don't know is going to happen. I hear chuckles because we all know people or we're like this, right? We actually will allow something that could happen and that anxiety and that stress to strip us of joy now to strip us of joy today, to make it so that we're not actually profitable today. You see, focusing on your past, focusing on a future that you don't know yet in this life can get us off track. Because last time I checked, we're here right now today. 
This is the moment that we're living in. This is the day that the Lord has made. You know, we could get all the kids in the room. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, like do the little tap thing. No one went to Sunday school. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm talking about. While it's wise to learn from our past and to plan for our future, that is wisdom, to learn from the past, to plan for the future. It's in the present that we live. And Ezekiel chapter 33 calls the nation of Israel to this reality. You are here, and where you are at with God in this very moment matters. Where you're at with the Lord today in this very moment matters. The past is in the past. The future is yet to be. However, our future, we understand the decisions that we make now, we can kind of predict what's going to happen in our lives due to the consequences of those decisions. We understand this with sin. That's what we're going to see in this text this morning as well. But do you actually know where you're going to be five years down the road? In this moment, right now, in this hour, you're like, I hope I'm not dead. (laughs) Like, I don't know where I'm going to, because we don't know. The future is uncertain. There's a reason why we don't see things like God sees them. We have limits. Church is so that we live today. It's so that we focus on things today, where we're at with the Lord today, what he wants to do in us today. Nothing wrong with planning for the future, but you remember, you don't know what's coming. God does. So we have to submit to him today. Our choices, we'll see this for the nation of Israel in our text, Our choices regarding obedience to God today will affect our future. It'll affect our outcome. Let's look and see how this affected the nation of Israel and see what we can learn from them. Ezekiel chapter 33. We're going to take the first, we're going to take this in chunks this morning. So we're going to read the first six verses and we'll just kind of take this in little pieces as we go through. We're doing the whole chapter. Say a quick prayer. Here we go. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and tell them, suppose I bring the sword against the land, and the people of that land select a man from among them, appointing him as their watchman. And suppose he sees the sword coming against the land and blows his trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet but ignores the warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his death will be his own fault. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but ignored the warning, his death is his own fault. If he had taken warning he would have saved his life. However, suppose the watchman sees the sword coming but doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people aren't warned and the sword comes and takes away their lives. Then they have been taken away because of their iniquity, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. We are on a bridge in chapter 33 of Ezekiel. We're bridging the ministry of Ezekiel, and it's changing in this chapter. We're going to see that a little bit further on. The, the whole focus of his ministry is about to change. And what's interesting about this is we're crossing this bridge that takes us from the previous section, which was the oracles against the nations. It was talking about Tyre. It was talking about Egypt. And now we're transitioning to looking at God's people, where they are in this moment, and where he's going to take them. It's really going to be an amazing section that we get to go through in the coming weeks looking at the closing of this book as Ezekiel's ministry moves to one of consolation, of of presenting things that are coming for the nation of Israel. And in the past, it's really been focused on the destruction that was coming for Jerusalem, which, you know, I'm going to spoil it here. It's going to happen in this chapter. Jerusalem will fall in this chapter. And so just as God has predicted, things are going to happen But the ministry is going to change. Now, as we look at this task of the watchman in this first section, as we're looking at God saying, suppose the people 
select a watchman. What was a watchman? Well, I think we generally understand what this is. It's consistent throughout Scripture, and prophetically it's referenced in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Habakkuk, here in Ezekiel. Watchmen were the guys that would stand on the highest point of the wall of the city, maybe even a lookout tower, and they're watching for danger. They're watching for approaching attack. They're the ones who are supposed to sound the alarm if attack's going to come upon the city. The watchman was responsible if he sounded the alarm and people didn't respond to it, that was their own fault. But if he didn't sound the alarm, if the watchman was found to not be fulfilling his task, the people were still going to be justly judged, but the watchman would be held accountable because he didn't sound the warning. It's interesting, isn't it? Regardless of the watchman's performance, the people are still accountable for the reason the sword is coming in the first place. This picture by no means removes the responsibility from the people that they're going to have to answer for their sinful activities. So you can't blame someone else for your problems. You can't blame someone, well, you know, they didn't tell me that what I was doing was sin for 20 years. Really? Don't play the blame game. You knew what you were doing was wrong. Now, there's a responsibility on the watchman, in this case, as we'll see in a moment, Ezekiel, to sound the alarm. The people are still accountable, but he has a responsibility. Notice this in verse 6. This is still an act of God that's happening here. However, says verse 6, suppose the watchman sees the sword coming but doesn't blow the trumpet so that the people aren't warned and the sword comes and take away their lives. They've been taken away because of their iniquity, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. There will always be responsibility for our own sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this. It reminds us about our, our own personal accountability. For we must all stand, 2 Corinthians 5.10, before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. It's on us. Yet, for those who have been called by God to be the watchman, to be the one who sounds the alarm, sounds the warning, there's extra accountability for the faithfulness with which we execute our calling. I can't help but think of leadership positions. I can't help but think of those who preach and teach the Bible. You see, when I study the Word, I, I, I feel like the Lord's preaching it right to me. God's speaking it right to me. And he asks those of us who are in the position to teach others, to share the truth with others, are you being faithful to my calling? Are you being faithful to his word? When God gives you a word to speak and you read it in the Bible and you know that it's true and it's counterculture, are you shying away from preaching truth? Are you shying away from saying what you should be saying regardless of the consequence because it's your job to do so? It's your calling to do so. It's your responsibility. Well, I guess I just kind of chickened out. You're going to be held accountable. I'm going to be held accountable. We can't back away from truth. Yes, we speak it in love, but we have to sound the alarm because someone might listen. Do you notice that in the case of the nation of Israel, they weren't listening. This judgment's coming for them, yet Ezekiel is still responsible to sound that warning regardless of what they choose. Do you ever get dejected about people not listening? About people not listening to truth, rejecting God? Does that ever bother you? Does it ever upset you? If it doesn't, it should. But it should never change your mission. It should never change the fact that you speak truth. 
We never base our duty on the results that we see. We base it on the obedience to God that he has called us to. It's obedience-based, not results-based. We should be very glad that the prophets didn't base their ministry on results. Because as you read through the books of the prophets, you would not say that they were very successful in turning people to the Lord, would you? For the most part, most people just walked away. Most people suffered and died for their sin, even though the prophets were crying out to them to stop, to turn to the Lord. There's a responsibility for those who hear the warning to act, and it's the responsibility of the watchman to sound the alarm. Now check out verses 7 through 9. God is the one who appointed Ezekiel to this calling. Look at this. As for you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die, but you do not speak out to warn him about his way. That wicked person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn a wicked person to turn from his way and he doesn't turn from it, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have rescued yourself. Fulfill your calling, Ezekiel. Do what I've told you to do. He was responsible. He was given this job by God. He says, suppose the people appoint a watchman in verse 2. And here he says, I have made you a watchman. Do you ever stop for a second and consider who's put the calling on your life? If it's people, we have to look at that. But if it's God, we never question it. If God has put a calling on my life, I'm going to continue doing what he has called me to do according to his word and obedience to him and let the chips fall where they fall. Let it fall where it may. God had spoken his word to Ezekiel. It was the prophet's job to relay that to the people as warning. And we should catch similarities here. We are not called to be silent. We are not called to remove ourselves from the place of speaking to this world, we are called to be faithful in the message that God has given us. Repent, turn to the Lord. Turn back to him. We've been given the same responsibility, church. The word that lays before you, that you're holding in your hand right now, even if it's a device, it still counts. Even if it's on a smartphone screen, that is the breath of God. It is breathed out by God to us and has been entrusted to us to proclaim. What is your life proclaiming? What's coming out of you? Is it the breath of God? Or is it the breath of self? Are you heralding the truths of God? Or are you misleading people? Church, we're accountable to relay the message God's given us accurately and to be what we've seen Ezekiel be for the people. He put his life on the line. He was like a, a one-man civic theater, putting on these little skits in front of people that were embarrassing to show them what God was going to do. He suffered. He could only speak when God gave him a word to speak. He couldn't even speak on his own. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. He lost his wife as an example of the suffering that was coming for the people Ezekiel laid it all on the line. You guys, I don't know if anyone's told you that Christianity should always be fun, that it's lollipops and cupcakes all day long. 
It's not. Or whatever candy you like, sorry. I don't mean to lock you into a mold there. I mean, Skittles if you want them. But here's the thing. It's not that. It's not that. We are called to be a living example of a human being submitted to God. You and I are called to be living examples of human beings submitted to God. For the ultimate example, see Jesus. None of us should take this responsibility lightly. None of us should see our job here on this earth, our calling here on this earth as being not as important as someone else's. God has given you his word. He has given you life. Use it for his glory. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. No matter how difficult or culturally unacceptable the message of Scripture is, it is God's word to a broken world. And no matter how much you want to fix them some other way, you can't. You can't fix the world. You can't fix the sin problem. You don't have the skills. Neither do I. We don't have the ability. Only God can fix it. Only Jesus can wash away the sins of this world. Amen? Do you believe that? Dang it, church. Wake up. There is not time to sit and spectate. There is not time to waste the life he's given to you. There is not time to wallow in a struggle with sin when we should be going on to righteousness in Christ. Wake up. Our time is now. We've been given today. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Neither am I. We are called to live in the present. Verse 10. Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, you have said this. This is the people of Israel speaking. Our transgressions and our sins are too heavy. They're heavy on us and we're wasting away because of them. How then can we survive? Tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? Why are you choosing death? Why are you choosing sin? When you can repent and live. Even as God's judgment is being poured out at this present time upon Jerusalem, as Ezekiel is prophesying to the exiles, there's hope for those who hear this message, both then and today. There is hope for those who hear the message. Repent now. Turn now. Stop admitting that you have sin in your life and do something about it. Stop talking about how one day you're going to get your life straight and get it straight by turning to the Lord and walking in his ways. God's message to them is the message that goes out to all who are in rebellion. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want wicked people to turn. I want people to get saved. He sent his son to die on the cross for everyone's sin so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He died on the cross for everyone's sin, for yours and for mine, and we act like that's just a cool story. But God's extending this, this hand to us to reconcile us to himself. It cost him the most precious thing. 
And 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first six verses read this way. I'll read them quickly, I promise. We gotta go. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior. Notice verse 4, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. This is the offer of salvation to all people. How do we not see God's grace and become overwhelmed, even emotional, broken to our knees when we see what he's done for us? And how can we not want that for the world around us? Because we're sinners, right? Because we're still struggling with sin in church, here's the call. Let his kindness lead you to repentance. Gaze into the face of the one who died for you in your place and be broken. Be broken. Stop living in sin. Stop dwelling in your sin. God has called us to be accountable to the present, to do these things now. The message that Ezekiel's brought to the people is a call to repent and be saved, and that's the same message that we've been given. But how can we give it to people if we're living in hypocrisy, church? We have to be walking in truth. We have to be upright about these things. We have to be real about our sin. We have to be real about our struggle and not just be like, oh, yes, I have sin and I struggle with it. Everyone can say that. Everyone says that. Do you have sin in your life? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. Have you given it to God? Yeah. Are you still doing it? Well, I mean, uh, not all the time, but we'll talk about obedience in a minute. Verse 12. Now, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous person will not save him on the day of his transgression. Uh Uh-oh. Sorry, the uh uh-oh is me. That's not in the text. Neither will the wickedness of the wicked person cause him to stumble on the day he turns from his wickedness. The righteous person won't be able to survive by his righteousness on the day he sins. When I tell the righteous person that he will surely live, but he trusts in his righteousness and acts unjustly, then none of his righteousness will be remembered and he will die because of the injustice he's committed. So when I tell the wicked person, you will surely die, but he repents of his sin and does what is just and right, he returns collateral, makes restitution for what he's stolen, walks in the statutes of life without committing injustice. He will certainly live. He won't die. Verse 16, none of the sins he committed will be held against him. He has done what is just and right. He will certainly live. But you people, your people say, the Lord's way isn't fair even though it is their own way that isn't fair. When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, he will die for it. But if a wicked person turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live because of it. Yet you say the Lord's way isn't fair. I will judge each of you according to his ways, house of Israel. There are amazing parallels between this chapter and chapter 18. 
If you read chapter 18 of Ezekiel and then you read chapter 33, the parallels are really striking. The exiles in this chapter, in chapter 33, actually recognize that they have sinned. They recognize that they have sinned. They don't do that in chapter 18 when we see the the body speaking there. Yet they question God's fairness when he declares that he'll hold people accountable for their sins today. He'll hold them accountable for sins they commit today. I think that we... We can, I want to be careful how I say this, we can at times abuse the grace of God. And, and I, I, I know that it may sound like, well, yeah, of course, at times we can. Those are kind of very, that's, that's really a weak statement. Well, here's what I'm really getting at. I think that in our current mindset as a culture, as a society, we are very prone to abusing God's grace, to banking on his forgiveness and being more comfortable with sin. Read Romans 6 through 8, by the way, for that. Not only for how we should feel about sin, but how God cleanses us from sin. We recognize that in Christ, our sin has been cleansed from us. But that means we should be less comfortable than sin than we have ever been before. You should be less comfortable with your personal sin than you have ever been right now. And you should not be enslaved to any sin right now. A guy named Victor Hamilton said this, he's a Bible commentator, regarding this section, the past does not save a person, the past does not condemn a person, where a person is today in his or her relationship with God is what counts. We should all be very thankful that our past cannot condemn us in Christ. But we should be very careful to believe that our past will save us when we're trying to live in sin. If you are enslaved to sin, you are not obeying God. You are in dangerous territory. You're in a dangerous place. You guys, if we stop pretending like the past was the thing that was saving us or stop pretending like the past was the thing that wrecked us, if we just started living for Jesus today, all in, all for him, and we just took this mentality, today is the Lord's day, I'm going to live for him 100%. I'm going to give him everything that I have. Should I sin, I will confess and repent of it. Should the Lord work powerfully through me, I'll give all the glory to him and praise his name. But if we live that way every single day, what would our homes be like? What would our workplaces be like? What would our church be like? Church? You realize this building isn't a church. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. How well would we be functioning if we went all in to serve the Lord and to live for his glory collectively today? How would that work out? You know, like, I don't know what... Do you think that worked out okay? Do you think that would turn out pretty good for us? You're like, well, it might get some persecution. And they went, Jesus said if they kill your body, it's not that bad. I'm serious. Read Luke 12. Don't fear people who could just kill your body. You know, NBD, what you should be afraid of. Sorry, I apologize for that. No big deal for all you. But you guys, you realize, he says, fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. 
We should be living in a way that is upright and fearful of God. Not like, ah, but like fearful in reverence and respect in response and obedience. Church, if we go all in, we will see revival. If we go all in and we live this way, the way that he says, be in the present. Stop talking about the past and expecting that to save you. Stop focusing on the past, expecting that to condemn you. God has given you today. Get right with him today. Amen? Let's go all in, church. Let's be who he's called us to be so that he can be glorified in our lives. Stop looking backwards. God is always fair. I didn't want to move past that. We got to take this in chunks. We got, we got to get through this this morning. But here's the thing. The people were accusing God of being unfair. That stopped me for a second. Do you think God's unfair? Don't nod or shake your head, please. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, I believe. Okay, we'll, we'll talk later. But here, here's the thing. We may not say that. Man, we act like it sometimes. Do you hate your gifts? Oh, everyone else got the good gifts. I just, I just got this, this thing where I open the chair and I set it in a line, and that's my gift. First of all, Eeyore, I don't think it's that bad. But second of all, so what? So what if God asked you to scrub the toilets of some building? So what if God gave you just an everyday skill? Aren't you supposed to do everything as unto the Lord? Isn't that him? Isn't it he that decides that for us? Isn't that him? Forgive me. Isn't that he that decides? You guys... Are we satisfied for do, with doing anything for him? Give me something so I can honor you. You see, when I don't like the gifts God's given me, that's me. That's making it about me. That's selfish. That's making things all about me. God is always fair. Never forget this. Church family, we can never, ever forget this. We don't deserve the grace and mercy given to us in Christ Jesus. Can we agree on that? We don't deserve it. Yet here we are. We are miles above fair. We are so beyond fair right now. God has been so overwhelmingly gracious to us just through Christ Jesus alone. Not to mention that he gave you breath today. This is a gift. Not to be tacky, but that's why they call today the present. All right. I had to do that somewhere. Verse 21. <laughs> Worth it. Verse 21. In the 12th year, this is where we see a shift in the story, okay? In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and reported, the city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord had been on me the evening before the fugitive arrived, and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. Huge transition in the ministry of Ezekiel right here. On January, some will say specifically January 8th, 585 BC, the prophecy that God had given to Ezekiel back in chapter 24, 26 comes to pass. He had told him, you're going to remain mute until 
The fugitive comes and reports to you that Jerusalem has fallen. The siege had already begun. Remember in chapter 24, he knew the siege had begun. The fugitive arrives and gives the report that Jerusalem has indeed fallen to Nebuchadnezzar. It took five to six months for this fugitive to arrive um, to give him the news, which is consistent for you Bible scholars that like to study with Ezra 7, which actually says that the exiles returning from Babylon, it took them about four to five months to make the journey. So this is exactly the amount of time that it would have taken this man to leave Jerusalem after seeing it fall and to come and bring the report to Ezekiel. God was right. God was right. What he said was going to happen, happened. The siege had taken two years and seven months. You can read about that in 2 Kings 25. But now it's over. It's over. Jerusalem has fallen. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Do you ever get surprised? It makes you wonder if Ezekiel was surprised. It doesn't say. But do you ever get surprised when God actually does what he said he was going to do? This should never shock us. But it does somehow. Just like the disciples couldn't figure out what was going on on the third day. Why weren't they at the tomb waiting? Because we're, we're just like them, aren't we? You guys, the city falls, and the more than 10-year enforced silence on Ezekiel has now come to an end. Ezekiel's silence has been removed. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't talking at all. It means that when he spoke, it was the word of the Lord. It was only the word of the Lord that was given to him. He was given a specific message, nothing else to say. And we read about this in Ezekiel chapter 3. Just to refresh your memory, Ezekiel 3, 26 through 27 said this, I will make your tongue, God speaking to Ezekiel, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth. You will be mute and unable to be a mediator for them, speaking of the nation of Israel, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth. You will say to them, this is what the Lord God says. Let the one who listens, listen. Let the one who refuses, refuse. For they are a rebellious house. God had put a lockdown on him. You will only speak these things. There are seasons of ministry that are hard. There are seasons of ministry that are difficult. When I say ministry, I'm just talking about serving the Lord. I'm not talking about full-time church staff ministry. I'm saying when we are serving the Lord, there are seasons that are difficult. There are seasons that are really hard. And if we based our obedience to God on how we felt during those seasons or how comfortable we were in them, we would never be effective for God's work like Ezekiel was. You understand we have a calling not only to obey God, but to persevere, but to endure. This is why we need him. This is why we must be filled with the Spirit, because I don't believe that you or I, left to ourselves, have that kind of endurance. But I think in Christ we do. I think empowered by the Holy Spirit, we absolutely do. If we agree that God is just and good, then we obey no matter what the cost and no matter what's going on around us. I said this recently to a couple of the young adults we've, we've been meeting and hanging out together, and, and I said, you realize there are worse things in this life than death. There are worse things in this life than dying. And we need to recognize that whatever the cost, we follow Christ. Whatever the cost, we honor him with our lives. That's what, that's what children of the king do. And no, it's not going to be fun. It's going to be difficult, but we must persevere. 
The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel again in verse 23. We continue on. Now that Jerusalem has fallen, the Lord says this to him. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, those who live in the ruins in the land of Israel are saying, don't you like, really quick, sorry, just as an aside, don't you like that God pops in and goes, Ezekiel, this is what the people are saying in Jerusalem right now. Um, Very revealing, isn't it? You realize that even though the prophet isn't there and God is speaking to him, God hears everything we say. God knows every thought you think. Sorry, that was for free. Uh, That wasn't in here. Let's continue. The people who are in the ruins in the land of Israel are saying, we're in verse 24, Abraham was the only one person, was only one person, yet he received possession of the land. But we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say to them, this is what the Lord God says. You eat meat with blood in it. Look to your idols and shed blood. Should you then receive possession of the land? You've relied on your swords. You've committed detestable acts, and each of you has defiled his neighbor's wife. Should you then receive possession of the land? Tell them this. This is what the Lord God says. As surely as I live, those who are in the ruins will fall by the sword. Those in the open field I have given to wild animals to be devoured, and those in the strongholds and caves will die by plague. I will make the land a desolate waste, and its proud strength will come to an end. The mountains of Israel become desolate with no one passing through. They will know that I am the Lord when I make the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable acts they've committed. Apparently, arrogance and pride is a really hard habit to kick. Because we'd like to think that when the Lord does something so jarring in our lives that we would break. Never underestimate the ability of a human being to harden the heart. Never underestimate it. And the reason I say that is because I think that sometimes we kid ourselves by saying, you know, if God really didn't like this, he'll just do something and break me. He'll just break me of it. I don't know. I don't know about a heart like that. These people just watched their city get ravaged by Nebuchadnezzar. And they're still saying, we deserve this place. They still have arrogance and pride. They're still not broken. Sometimes I loathe the fact that God gives us choice. Sometimes I can't stand it. Lord, just take over. Make me a robot. Right? I'm so stupid. Just run me. You know? (laughs) Jesus, take the wheel. He's like, your car's a piece of crap. We need to fix it. We got to fix the problem. You're not going to get very far. No, no, no. Let's just drive, Lord. It's cool. We'll get there. You don't know better than God. You aren't sovereign. Yet he gives us this choice, and this should scare us, people. This should scare us that we can actually resist him, even in a breaking this severe. This should scare us. It should make us come to the Lord and go, Lord, never allow my heart to get this callous. Never allow me to be this stubborn with you. I choose to break now. I choose to bow now. I'll give up whatever you want me to give up. Even after God's destructions come upon Jerusalem, the people still think that because they're descended from Abraham, they'll be allowed to possess the land. 
but God corrects their thinking. And just as we read earlier in verse 13 in the same chapter, when I tell the righteous person that he will surely live, but he trusts in his righteousness and acts unjustly, then none of his righteousness will be remembered and he will die because of the injustice he's committed. It's almost like God's consistent. You know, we've been saying this a lot. It's almost like God is going to do everything that he said he will do. And that's, a, that's both concerning for when we're in sin and it's filled with hope when we break because we can look at our past and go, Lord, I messed up so much, but I'm sorry and I don't want to do it anymore and here I am. And he says, life. He will give us life. He will forgive. He will take us onward if we come to him humbly. But this kind of arrogance leads to destruction. This kind of pride leads to a fall. And verse 25 levies the truth right at the people. Therefore say to them, this is what the Lord God says. You eat meat with blood in it. Look to your idols. You shed blood. Should you receive possession? What have you done to earn? What have you done to win this land for yourself? What have you done to deserve any of it? We could talk about how useless even their good works are, let alone their rebellious acts. The people were unlike Abraham in the most important way. Was Abraham perfect? No. No. But Abraham trusted in God. And Abraham was moldable. No, Abraham wasn't perfect. But Abraham had faith in the Lord. He faithfully submitted himself to God. You know, we even look at examples like King David. King David messed up more than most of us could ever dream of messing up. And yet look at the heart of David when God convicted him of his sin. Lord, cleanse me. I'm a wretch. Folks, how we respond to conviction matters greatly. Don't explain it away. Be someone who breaks when the truth comes. These people, the truth fell hard, and they're still rebellious. They're still stubborn. I've said this a lot, especially recently. Obedience matters. Obedience matters. We have to become a church that's not known for our music, for our location, for our logo. We need to be known for obedience. That needs to be the thing that people know about Calvary Rathdrum. That church is obedient to Christ. They are obedient. That's not something that most people go around like. They want to be known for so many things. We need to be known for our obedience to the Lord. That church reads the Bible and does what it says. They walk with the Lord. Doesn't matter what's happening in the world. They walk with God. They obey him. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. We can't be like the people in Jerusalem. And we can't be like the people in exile. Let's look at this as well. Verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people are talking about you near the city walls and in the doorways of their houses. One speaks to another, each saying to his brother, come and hear what the message is that comes from the Lord. 
So my people come to you in crowds, sit in front of you and hear your words, but they don't obey them. Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Yes, to them you are like a singer of passionate songs who has a beautiful voice and plays skillfully, skillfully on an instrument. They hear your words, but they don't obey them. Yet when all this comes true, and it definitely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. God calls out the people in Jerusalem who are still being stubborn, and then he turns to Ezekiel in exile and says, and I've got a message for the people that are with you as well. Just because you're popular doesn't mean that people are obedient. Popularity does not breed obedience. Repentance does. Repentance breeds obedience. It starts with brokenness to the Lord. Ezekiel was doing exactly what God had told him to. Yet the goal for his ministry wasn't being achieved even, even in exile because he was entertainment for the people. That's not what he was there to do. Going to hear Ezekiel, going to church. Are these bad things? No. But why do you go? Why do you show up? Because you're supposed to? So that people see you? You realize we don't have a ledger with your name on it. All right, they were here. Guess they're still saved. It doesn't work like that. We come because we desire fellowship and worship in the presence of God as a family, as a body. Because the Lord told us to, it's good for us. But you realize if you show up here for the wrong reasons, you're wasting your time. If we're just here to listen and not be changed, if we're here just to be entertained, if we're here just to be held captive for a little while, I am not here to entertain you. Corey doesn't stand up here on this stage to entertain you. The music isn't to entertain you. It's giving you opportunity to hear from God, to worship God, to be changed by him. And if you come to be entertained, stop it. And I don't mean stop coming. Stop your reasoning. Stop your motivation. Don't come for the wrong reasons. Come because you long for the Lord. Come because you recognize that you meet him here in the presence of your brothers and sisters in Christ. If we don't listen and learn and obey, we're wasting our time. He says, my people come to you in crowds. They sit in front of you. They hear your words, but they don't obey them. Their mouths go on passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. They're hearing it, but they're not doing anything about it. And in the same vein, James speaks to us in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. God blesses us for doing it, for living it, not for listening. God does not bless us for listening. You cannot be hearers only. We have to be doers. That's the problem with the nation of Israel. 
That's the issue right now. And it's not only for the ones who were judged in Jerusalem. It's for the exiles. They're at the canal as, as, as Ezekiel's receiving these prophecies. He's like, these people, you need to listen up. You need to learn. You need to change your ways. But they're just there for the fun of it. And so God says this to him in the final verse, 33, 33. Yet when all this comes true, and it definitely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Everything that God says he will do, our only way forward is clear. Knowing that, and please grab hold of that, everything that God has said he will do, he will do. And because of that, the past is the past. The future is yet to come. But our salvation in Christ gives us the ability to stand today. Now. Today is the day of salvation. This is the moment he's given you. And you need to have that mentality every day for the rest of your life. Every morning you wake up, I get one more opportunity. I get one more chance. This is a gift. I'm going to live for him now. Our salvation in Christ is sure. Jesus is our steadfast anchor. But how do you know that you belong to him? How do you know? That's individual. That's for you to ask in your own heart. How do you know that you belong to Jesus? Look at your life. Does it reflect the life of someone who is living for Jesus? Does it look like someone who is being conformed into the image of of God's own son? Or do you reflect something that looks like this weird mutation of the world? Have you given your life to Christ? Are you part of the family of God? Here's how Jesus told us we could know. Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 20. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to see you. Jesus replied, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. We need to be empowered by the Lord to do this. We have to surrender ourselves to Christ, but that's from the mouth of Jesus himself. Being part of the family of God means that we are hearers and we are doers. Always. No exceptions. When we fail, we repent. But church, do you realize how much this city, this region, this county will change if we hear and do day by day? If we listen to the word of God and do what it says every single day, this is his command for us. Make the changes necessary. Make the changes in your homes. Make the changes at your workplace. Make the changes in your church. Step up. Start serving. Start getting involved with things. You realize that we all have gifting and that we all are part of this body together, which means we need to function as one unit. What comes next is an opportunity. The table in the back is set up for you to take communion as the Lord leads you to do so. And as we go into this time of communion and worship, this is your chance. 
to recognize if there is an evil, unbelieving heart within you. And to cry out what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He said, search my heart, O God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that is everlasting. He's calling us out to a closer walk with him. That begins with a change of heart. begins with repentance. If you repent this morning, if you turn to the Lord this morning, there will be a change in your life. I hope that there isn't resistance rising up inside of you already. Be soft. Don't build up a wall. Receive what the Lord's spoken to you this morning from his word. Take communion. Remember the body and the blood. Jesus' body that was broken for us. His blood that poured out. His life that was sacrificed. That's why we take communion. It's to remember. To remember that Apart from him, we can't do anything. But in him, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Submitted to his will, according to where he's taking us. Let's approach the table this morning with reverence and awe. Let's worship him in spirit and in truth. And if you need to pray with someone, people are going to come forward. I encourage you, be bold. Pray with somebody. Worship. Come forward if you want prayer. Come right up to the front. Take communion. Do whatever God leads you to do, but this is time to respond to him. And don't worry about what people think. I don't care what people think. You be concerned about what God thinks. You can be, you be concerned about where you're standing with him right now. Respond accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, we are nothing without you. And yet... Lord, while we were still sinners, Jesus, you came and died. And we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your, your death on the cross in our place. And so, Lord, just stir us to respond. Stir us to do something about this, to not be hearers only. God, I desire for you to do something in this church. And so, Lord, would you just speak right into the hearts of the people that are resisting you. Give us the ability. Lord, increase our faith as we worship.